Well, I'm standing up on top of uh, Silo Hill, which is overlooking the uh, beautiful little town of Stroud. And uh, back in the 1800s, this hill where I'm standing right now was um, used by the Australian Agricultural Company to uh, build a, a series of underground silos to store their wheat and grain, protecting them from weevils and fly. It was a symbol of the town and the region's wealth, really. The AAC was a powerful company in Australia, uh, mostly interested in sheep farming. And uh, now all that's left of it is this relic, this hill, where the silos have been blocked off, empty and guarded by two old relics of the past as well. Uh, fortification which was originally in Sydney and then Fort Scratchley in Newcastle Harbour and then in the early 1900s brought by barge up the river and reassembled standing here on top of the hill. Uh, I find it intriguing that places like this exist, um, memories of a bygone era, of a bygone wealth. Uh, I don't think there's any sheep farming left in this area where go back a couple of hundred years and um, the hills around here would have been covered in sheep. But, but what's left is just a, a memory of the wealth of this region from an era not forgotten but, but long gone. Wealth is a strange thing, isn't it? We pursue it, we chase it, and yet it can so easily slip through our fingers. I can, I can still remember the smell. For me, it was the alluring smell of success. Uh, it's hard to describe it, that smell. It was probably a, a mixture of um, one part glue and one part the crisp smell of paper notes. I'd, uh, I'd been lining up at the pay window. I don't know if you remember those. It was one week after I'd started my very first job. I was still at school and it was a, a weekend job. And I waited till a few other people had collected their little orange envelopes and then it was finally my turn to collect my little orange envelope. I'd never collected one before. I was so excited, but I didn't want to show it. And so I said thank you to the pay clerk, and I felt this little orange envelope in my hand, and I very calmly walked away, pretending not to be overly excited, until I found a little private corner somewhere where I could tear open that little orange envelope. I still remember the smell of it, the smell of the freshly sealed glue and the, the money inside. There were two uh, $20 bills crisply folded and maybe about $2 in assorted coins. $42 I received in my first pay. That was for 
a full day's work pushing trolleys around a car park as I collected them and took them back up to the front entrance of our little town's local shopping town, shopping centre. I worked all day and I received $42. And I couldn't have been more thrilled. I was so excited. And into my 15-year-old brain came all of these dreams and aspirations as if $42 was burning a hole in my pocket. And I wanted to go and spend it all, but at the same time I wanted to save it up. And next Saturday I'd work again and then I'd have $84 if I didn't spend any of this pay. And, and so the maths went on in my head until I'd, well, I'd saved up to buy a mansion, cars to fill the garage, a boat to go fishing in on the weekend... Money will do that to you. Wealth will do that to you. Do you remember your first pay? Do you remember what it felt like to get that money in your hand, put it in your pocket, know that you'd earned that, what you could do with that? Feels like a long time ago now. In some ways, I was... I was right. I could do a lot with that money. But I was also foolishly wrong. That $42 was, was just the beginning. And, and a lot could be done with that. A lot could be built from that. But it was also the beginning of my dissatisfaction with wealth. Google which didn't exist when I earned my first $42. Google has a special technology that guesses what you want to search for by reading as you type and comparing those words with every, with every other search done in Google across the entire world. So on Wednesday, I began typing how to grow your, and then I got W because I was going to write Wealth, how to grow your W. Now, Google almost instantaneously compares those words and those letters with every other search made, and it brings up a list, the top searches that match ex your exact words and letters. You want to know what the second most popular thing, beginning with W, people want to know how to grow? It's not wealth. How to grow your wrist. I'm wondering who out there wants to know how to grow their wrist and why. It's the second most searched phrase when you type in how to grow your W. <laughs> wrist was followed by five other options. Um, they were presented in decreasing popularity. So we got how to grow your website was next. How to grow your waist. They didn't have to Google that. I could have told them that. Uh, how to grow your wings. I don't understand that one. How to grow your weight. There's another one I could have told them. How to grow your wedding planning business was the last one. 
you probably have guessed what the first one was, right? How to grow your wealth. It's the top number one ranked search across all of Google if you type in how to grow your and the letter W. Solomon has a fair bit to say about wealth in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about wealth. The vast majority of it isn't that positive, really, if you try and do a survey of all of it. Yet, worldwide, it is universally pushed as one of the great agendas of life. I'm, I'm not going to give you today a, a whole bunch of ways to get wealthy even while glorifying God in the midst of it. And you can do that. I'm thankful for people who have. In fact, you'll probably need to go Google that if you want to find that out. I'm not going to be talking about that today. Instead, I'm going to let Solomon give you, well, seven reasons you shouldn't get wealthy. That's what Solomon's going to talk about. But before I do, let me give you a little um, word of warning, which will relate to a couple of Solomon's points here. Because wealth is a really tricky subject. The day I placed that $42 in my wallet, I felt on top of the world. Maybe if you can remember getting your first pay, you remember that feeling? I was um, wealthy. At 15, that was the most money I'd ever earned in one day, and I felt wealthy with $42 in my pocket. But today, I don't particularly consider myself a wealthy person. But even I consider $42 to be not that much, right? Oh, $42. If you had $42 to your name and that's all you had, you probably wouldn't feel that wealthy. But I did when I was 15. On my present standard of living, if someone said to me, hey, what about if you could be earning $200,000 a year? I'd think, wow, that's really wealthy. And yet I've actually read quotes from people in recent times who who were talking about um, economic um, ideas and taxation brackets and all sorts of things. It was pretty boring reading. But they were talking about people who were earning $200,000 a year, and the the commentator has said um, that that's not wealthy. So wealth is a tricky topic. To some people, $42 seems wealthy. To other people, $200,000 seem wealthy. But to others... $200,000 seems nothing. And yet, there are others in this world who would look at $42 and think, I wish, I wish I could have $42. Wealth is a tricky topic. The idea of wealth, it's quicksand. Here are the seven reasons that I think Solomon's trying to warn us about in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to read from verses 10 down through 17, but we'll just take it bit by bit. Seven reasons not to get wealthy, according to Solomon. Here's number one. The first reason not to get wealthy is you never have enough. Have a look at Ecclesiastes 
5, verse 10. It says, The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. Solomon's saying, you'll never have enough. It doesn't matter how much you earn, there will still be more that you want to earn. So the first reason to not get wealthy is you'll never have enough. Second reason, found from verse 11. Let's read it. When good things increase, the one who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? Now, you might be thinking, what's he trying to say? Here's how I would summarize it in the language that we might use today. The second reason not to get wealthy is that you'll be the cow that everybody else wants to milk. Or there will be a never-ending supply of leeches who want to suck you dry. That's what Solomon's saying. He says, when your goods increase, when, when your wealth accumulates, when you become what others would see as being successful, the ones who consume them multiply. The people who come along to be your fair-weather friend, who want to join in on the good life a little bit, Solomon says, they too will multiply. And the one who owns, the, the one who should be there to profit, he can just watch on. That's the second reason. Here's the third reason, found in verse 12. You'll wake up exhausted. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. You'll go to bed at night, wealthy, but you won't be able to sleep. Solomon says, you'll wake up exhausted. Your, your nights will be filled with fitful turning. Maybe you've experienced that. Here's the next one. Wealth brings pain. Verse 13. There is a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his harm. Wealth brings pain. Here's the next. You'll live wondering whether you'll lose it all. You'll live wondering whether you'll lose it all. Verse 14, that wealth was lost in the bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. So the guy that's wealthy, in one bad venture, can lose it all with nothing to pass on. And the wealthy live in fear of a bad decision or a bad tragedy where they might lose it all. You will live your life wondering when you'll lose it all. Next one. You'll die and leave life the way you entered it, with nothing. Solomon's a cheery guy, isn't he? Verse 15 and verse 16 say this. As he came from his mother's womb, so he'll go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. 
exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? Solomon says, you'll die. doesn't matter what your bank balance is. And you'll leave life the way you entered it, with nothing. Verse 17. What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. His point is, if you're going to be wealthy, expect to be miserable. Seven reasons why you shouldn't be wealthy. Now, some of you may be aware of this, but I dabble in trying to be a writer. At least I try. I have my own blog called The Plowman's Rest, which has had some modest success. Uh, I also direct an online group of gospel writers from all over the world. It's called the Gospel-Centred Discipleship Writers Guild. Maybe if you enjoy writing and you're listening to this, you should jump online and Google that. You can check it out and join. One day I wouldn't mind publishing a book. It's a bit of a goal I've got. I also happen to have a few friends who are writers and some of those have published books. In fact, one of my friends has this uncanny knack of being able to churn out a published book about once a year. And some of those friends have said to me, look, oh, Chris, sure, it's, um, it's nice to have published a book, but you know, it's not going to change your life or anything. And, and I think, well, sure, that's easy for you to say. You've got plenty of books published. And maybe you're thinking, when I'm talking about wealth, well, Chris, it's all fine and good for you to say that we shouldn't get wealthy. But it's not me that's telling you you shouldn't get wealthy. It's Solomon. When he wrote this, these words that we just read together, he was arguably the wealthiest man on the planet. The guy, the guy that had it all is sitting down and sort of leaning into us a little bit and he's giving us the inside scoop of what it's like. And he's saying, it's not worth it. Don't do it. Don't chase it. You see, the reason he says it's not worth it is he knows that what we're chasing is not actually wealth. We think it is, but but it isn't. We're searching for something else. It could be one of, of more of a dozen different things, maybe. Maybe it's security or... Image, maybe power or influence. The list goes on, but we think that wealth is where those things are hidden. Solomon says they're not, and that we should beware wealth. Jesus says that we should beware wealth. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for your souls treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says, Matthew 6, from 19 down to verse 24. Jesus says, beware of wealth. Paul, in the New Testament, he says, you should beware of wealth. So in uh, 1 Timothy 6, when he wrote a letter to his uh, young friend that he'd been discipling, he says, but, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Or, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Or the writer of the book of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm certain that we in, in our prosperous Western countries don't really take Paul all that seriously when he warns Timothy against people who are you know, deprived in mind and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a means of great gain. That's in 1 Timothy 6 and 5. I don't think we take that seriously enough. So I'm going to give you three antidotes that I think Solomon gives us. Three antidotes to the seeking of satisfaction in wealth. So we had seven reasons why you shouldn't become wealthy, and, and now he's going to give us three antidotes to seeking satisfaction in wealth. First is this. We need to pray. We need to pray. This doesn't actually come from Ecclesiastes, but this one's going to come from the book of Proverbs, of which Solomon wrote much, but this particular one in Proverbs 30 was advice that Agar, the son of Jacob, gave to his sons. We can read them in Proverbs 30. It's a great prayer that we should adopt. So the first antidote for seeking satisfaction in wealth is to pray and specifically to pray prayers like this proverbs 30 verse 7 and 9 say this two things i ask of you don't deny them to me before i die keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me that's number one give me neither poverty nor wealth feed me with the food i need Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, who's the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. It's a great prayer that we should be 
training ourselves daily to be coming before God and saying, God, help me by not giving me too little and not too much. I was having a conversation with Aaron the other day, and he said to me, what's the opposite of poverty? I thought for a moment, I, I said, probably wealth. And he said, no, wrong. The opposite of poverty is enough. Just enough. And that's what Agur, the son of Jacob, was teaching us to pray. Lord, just give me enough. Not poverty, not wealth. Enough. That's the first antidote, prayer. Second antidote is to foster a way of living with a we is better than me attitude. A we is better than me attitude. This passage in Ecclesiastes that we're looking at is quite a difficult passage to communicate, not because it's difficult to understand really, but because most people think they already know what it means. So I'm about to read it to you. And you will most likely think, oh, yes, it's the marriage verses. Husband, wife, God, the threefold cord that can't easily be broken. But these verses aren't about marriage. They're about wealth. I'm sure it's not a bad principle that you can apply to marriage. Husband, wife, God, that's how marriages grow strong for sure, but... When Solomon wrote these words, he wasn't planning on giving you a really cool verse that could be read out at your wedding day. He was trying to help you understand something significant about the way that we deal with the temptation of wealth. So let's read them. Ecclesiastes 4, you'll find them. Go back into chapter 4, starting at verse 7. It says, again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother and Though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things? This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Solomon's basically contrasting two different types of people in this little passage. One lives their lives out pursuing wealth yet has no one to share the benefits of it with. They enslave themselves to work in order to gain wealth for themselves only. The second person that he contrasts that with understands the, the natural law of strength in numbers, we say. That the, the whole is stronger than the sum of its parts. Solomon is highlighting the wisdom of working in partnership with another so that both can reap the reward. Both people can mutually benefit from each other. 
And he does this by using just a few very simple examples. The first one's when one person falls over. If he's got someone with him, he's got someone who can care for him. Help pick him up. He's not talking about just tripping on the edge of the concrete or something. He's talking about some type of real fall where if you are alone, you might lie there until you die. But when you've got someone with you, they're there to help. That's the first example. Or when two people lie down close to each other in the cold, you benefit from the body warmth of the person laying next to you. And while you might lie there, even under a blanket, on a cold night on your own, you might think, oh, it's cold, but any of you who have lived life with a spouse, your husband or your wife, you might even have laughed over the years of one person who feels the cold and one person who doesn't, or uh, my wife and I have over the years have gone through the, oh, this, I need a warmer blanket or I need a thinner blanket because the, the body temperature of each other helps keep you warm. The third example he gives is just the, the example that we teach our children when they go out. You know, when they're getting old enough to go out with their license, it's like, go out in a group. It's safer if you're in a group. If you're on your own, you're more vulnerable. And Solomon says, listen, if you're on your own, you could easily be overpowered. But if there's two of you at least, that's better. And he finishes by sort of saying, well, man, if, if one is you know, vulnerable, two is better. But wow, three, that's even better again. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. And, and that advice is right in the middle of him talking about the danger and the futility of wealth. What has this got to do with wealth? How is this an antidote for seeking satisfaction in the wrong places? I've got a couple of ideas. First is this. If I'm investing in horizontal relationships, let's call it. If I'm investing in horizontal relationships with others that are healthy, it helps me not to be a selfish person. If I live in isolation from others, I start to just think of my own needs, my own desires, my own self. But if I live in community, in relationship with people around me, I'm, I'm naturally, and then God asks me to consider others more significant, more important than I am even. And so one way of having an antidote of finding satisfaction and wealth is by living in a, an attitude where we is better than me. It helps me not to be selfish. Second thing that I want to comment on that is investing in healthy horizontal relationships with others helps me find my satisfaction in realities that can't be recorded on a spreadsheet or measured on a chart or looked up in your portfolio even relationships help reset my priorities and reorder my affections for what's important in life third thing investing in horizontal relationships with others helps me to remain humble community is a place where i can contribute but more often than not it's where i receive we australians are pretty proud people we say, I don't need anybody else's charity. I can stand on my own two feet. We teach our children from very young that financial security 
and financial independence is the goal. And it's a humbling thing when someone comes alongside of you and you need to receive help from them. Humility is a good thing for a Christian, especially when it comes to wealth. It's an antidote to finding my satisfaction in my own financial independence and wealth. Here's the last thing that I think is an antidote. Learn the ancient art of contentment. Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 9. Have a look at it. It says, Better what the eyes see than wandering desires. This too is futile in the pursuit of the wind. Better what the eye sees than wandering desires. What's Solomon saying there? He's saying what's right in front of you, what you can actually see, is far better than what you imagine is still out there to be gained, your wandering desires. And again, he he illustrates this tragedy by quoting a proverb. You can see it in verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7 of Ecclesiastes. He says, all of a person's labor is for his stomach. Yet the appetite is never satisfied. Basically saying, you go out and work so that you can earn money, so that you can feed yourself. And yet tomorrow, you'll be hungry again. What you have right in front of you is better than wandering desires. Solomon points us to a life of contentment in whatever God gives us. So Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 through 20, find that. Here is what I have seen to be good, it says. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him. Because that is reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them. Take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Solomon says that one of the key ways we guard our hearts against trying to find our satisfaction in all the wrong places is by learning to be content with what we have rather than pursuing what we don't have. Because contentment isn't tied to a bank balance. Satisfaction is found in someone greater than financial security. While I'm on a roll with smashing coffee cup verses, let me add another one to the shards on the floor. You know this one. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. It sounds even better when you say it in the King James Version. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. It's motivating, isn't it? It's it's a great verse to print out on your coffee cup as you face the day, thinking about all the things that you want to achieve, all the things that you want to accomplish. Ironically, your 
juicing yourself up on caffeine so that you feel like you can achieve those things. And meanwhile, we're saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. We, we normally quote this type of verse as some type of um, spiritual motivational mantra, almost. It's so that we can muster up enough courage to accomplish or chase after our dreams with some type of challenge in the way, some type of obstacle that we can foresee. And very quickly we bring out Philippians 4.13 as we look at it and we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. But do you realize that when Paul wrote those words, that he meant the exact opposite to how we use those words? He, He wasn't hyping himself up with some type of spiritual Holy Spirit power mantra or anything. He wasn't trying to chase down his dreams by claiming and saying, you know, I can do this through Christ, of course, who strengthens me. He was was making the claim that true satisfaction isn't found in wealth, nor is it found in possessions or achievements. It's found in Jesus. Paul was writing a thank you note to his friends in the church at Philippi who had sent him some money in the mail. He, he wanted them to know that he'd got it, that it had arrived safely to him. And he also wanted to tell them that he was grateful for the fact that they cared about him enough to do that. So here's part of what he wrote. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but, but you lacked the opportunity to show it. Verse 11. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself in. I know how to make do with little. And I know how to, do, how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances... I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. Did you see it? Paul's satisfaction, his contentment, his strength wasn't tied to a bank balance. Paul's satisfaction was in Christ. Paul could make do with a little. He could make do with a lot. He could make do with hunger or abundance Because none of those things were the aim. None of those things were the goal. Jesus was. As long as he had Jesus, he could live with anything. So here's what we can take from all of this. Money is meaningless without Jesus. Jesus. 